This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. There may not be enough superlatives available to properly define my next guest. From fleeing a politically divided Egypt, overcoming years of religious prejudice and gender inequality, surviving an emotionally and physically abusive marriage, and raising two kids as a single mother, all the while to becoming the first immigrant Arab Muslim woman to serve in the U.S. Armed Forces. That exceptional person is Mona Johnson, and she joins me today. This is her story. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us Beyond Borders. So not created equal, an immigrant Muslim woman's pursuit of equality in her family, the army, and America. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us about your childhood experience. I know most of that was growing up in America, but your family is from Egypt. Could you share a little bit about that and ultimately what factors led your family to decide to leave? Yes. Uh, well, I'll start with my birthplace was in, in Cairo, or rather Giza, which is a suburb of Cairo right outside the pyramids. My mother is actually half German and half Egyptian, and my father is Egyptian. And my father was a police officer slash lawyer, and he was involved with the Egyptian government and the coup that took place in 1952 that pretty much uh, deposed the royal family, King Farouk, and got the British out of Egypt because at the time we were colonized by the Brits. Egypt was actually pretty westernized at that time. After the coup, President Mohammed Naguib became the first president who was along with the coup, and then Nasser, and then Anwar Sadat. And my father was with all three of them. He was a police officer. They were all army officers. As the years went by, my father was seeing some things that were he was not comfortable with uh, that Nasser was doing. He was afraid that someone was going to take over in another coup and became increasingly paranoid and started imprisoning a lot of the inner circle people. Um, And my father started releasing them. Uh, He saw that these were innocent men and he released them. And before too long, my father's actions were discovered and uh, Nasser wanted his head, so to speak. That's what prompted him to immediately leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we landed in Saudi Arabia, where we lived in exile for two years mm. um, before coming to America. All right. So why America? What was the decisioning factor there? Um, well, my, because like I said, Egypt was very westernized and my parents loved to go to the movies <laughs> and the Hollywood movies came out of America mm-hmm. because it was the land of the free also supposedly the american dream (laughs) um which you know turned out to be is actually different for everybody and we did achieve our american dream but it wasn't what we thought it would be (laughs) of course it never is i was eight when i came to america Mm -hmm. but i spent two years in saudi arabia right it sounded good to my parents (laughs) and they were going to stay except it wasn't what, you know, it's, it's not a land for women. <laughs> right. I think you said like the education only goes up to around third grade or fourth grade, something like that. 
That was before we left. Yes, wow. the, the limits was third grade, and that was for the royal family. <laughs> wow. The regular Saudi population women had no education. Right. Even the princesses, which the school that I attended, the limit was third grade. But now, of course, things have changed tremendously right. since uh, they've become wealthy. It's a completely different world. Right. And that sort of says something about your parents. They were forward thinking. Our daughter, we want her to have an education, right? And Absolutely. want her to develop and grow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's what my father said. The, the primary reason why he chose to come here was so I could get an education. Beautiful. I did. (laughs) You sure did. You sure did. So let's talk about that transition. Your experience in Inglewood and St. Louis, just that adversity and culture shift. What was some of the things that really pointed out to you that was an adjustment? It was quite an adjustment. (laughs) Right. Uh, First of all, the language. we did not know English, of course. We we spoke German, Arabic, and French. Mm-hmm. Um, we landed in neighborhoods that weren't welcoming to us whatsoever um, because of all three factor, factors. We were foreign. We didn't speak English. Uh, we were dark-skinned. And um, we were not Christian. So we had all those things against us, and and it was very hard to assimilate into the society based on those things. Still, there was segregation, but then in 1965, we became citizens. We took our oath and became naturalized citizens, and at the time, we took the advantage of changing our name. Mm. At the time, it it sounded right. In order to have a more decent life, Hmm. it fit. But over the years, we felt like we lost our identity. Hmm. Didn't just anglicize it. We completely changed it to Johnson. We wanted to assimilate, and that was the way it was done then. Of course, now it's horrifying to think that someone has to do that. I'm not sure how much you would like to get in to it, but I just want there to be an understanding of the types of bumps and bruises and what you were exposed to. How was one, your your culture and religion rejected or, or misunderstood, you know, growing up when you first came? Well, at first, of course, we didn't understand what they were saying because we didn't understand English. But as we learned it, there were things like, uh, Desert rat, um, mm. um, desert. N- <laughs> excuse mm. the term, but yeah, no. Um, that, that was sand, sand. N- same mm-hmm. thing. Oh gosh, I could go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> it gets more and more insulting. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually Just in ignorance. high school. Yeah. 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 Exactly. In in high school, I actually got beat up um, by a boy much older than I was. He called me a Arab slut and go back to your tent, your filthy mm-hmm. tent where you belong. So I took things into my own hands and I was outside with my friend playing. It was a summer morning, a summer mm-hmm. day, very hot. And we were hosing each other down with a water hose. And he said this to my, to me and my mm-hmm. friend. And so I just took the hose and I squirted him with it full mm-hmm. force. Uh, he came after me and 
and he beat me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I was 15. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. he was he was over 18. Um, unfortunately, my father did not press charges, <laughs> which a lot of minority and immigrant families like to kind of stay low, you know, because for various factors, you just don't want trouble, even even when trouble comes to you. Right. What experiences molded you and, and drove you to join the armed forces? How did that idea arise in the first place? It was very, uh, uh, I don't want to say coincidental, but it definitely wasn't a lifelong dream. Hmm. Um, what happened was earlier in my life, my mother's brother was a pilot for Egypt Air. He was very instrumental in getting us out of the country unnoticed. As soon as we came to America, I should say, um, his plane crashed and everyone oh, wow. perished. Mm. Um, and that was very Sorry. devastating for our family. Mm. Um, and the worst was we couldn't do anything to console our family in Egypt because my father was wanted there for treason. But I wanted to be a pilot like him. Mm. And, of course, in those days that wasn't possible. The best thing I could do was to be a, a stewardess. and that wasn't going to happen because I had to go to college. <laughs> mm. There was nothing that I could get a college degree for even to become a pilot. And so several of my friends in college were talking about nursing and going into the Air Force. And I decided oh, I'd be an Air Force nurse. I'll go into nursing and join the Air Force. Therefore, I can be a pilot. It was a very roundabout way. But I ended up getting married um, to a Muslim, and unfortunately, it did not happen to be a good marriage. Yeah. Very abusive. Mm-hmm. And uh, had two children from that marriage, and this was after I graduated from college that I married. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I wrote in my chapters, the amount of abuse was uh, uh, intolerable. So finally, when I left him, I decided I need to get a new start and I thought about the Air Force I talked to my my father about it who I was very close to my father had re-educated himself received a PhD in um, Islamic studies and he received a job in the Defense Language Institute in Monterey California where we lived so he knew, and this this was a school that taught Arabic and Islamic culture to military officers and soldiers. So he knew what the military life was like, even though my father was a civilian, but he interacted with military. And he suggested that I go into the Army or Air Force and start a new life there as a nurse. And he was very 100% behind it. And so I thought, okay, well, that's an idea. And so I did. <laughs> And I received a commission right away. It wasn't the Air Force because the Air Force just did not act fast enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, they were slow with their paperwork and I wanted to get on with my life. The Army accepted me and I had the two girls with me. I had two children, two-year-old and a four-year-old in tow. Mm -hmm. And went into the Army and started my career. Never looked back. Joining the Army... You being one of the few, if the only Arab Muslim, um, yes. How did you reconcile the the two? Like having your 
Arab Muslim identity, but then also the identity of the army. Was there a clash there? Did you feel open enough to share that? Was there anybody that you could talk to that you could relate on that level with? Um, the short answer is no. Mm, sure. <laughs> the longer answer is um, my identity as an Egyptian was never an issue because of course, I had to go through the background check and the security clearances because officers have to have top secret security clearance. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, they knew where I came from and how I came about, you know, becoming a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was not a question. But the fact that my religion didn't come up until uh, I mentioned this in the book, until I had to get my dog tags and then. The dog tags are the tags that identify you in case you became a casualty in the field. Um, and that included your uh, your name, your social security number, your blood type, and your religion. Hmm. And I was kind of stuck at that. Um, and I did not convey the fact that I was Muslim. Um, instead, I indicated no religious preference, hmm. NRP, and left it at that. And uh, because Egypt had a large, a large um, population that are Christian and Jewish, people usually just assumed that I was Christian. And my name is Johnson, and nobody questioned me. Right. And when they did, I, I just did not admit to it. Hmm. Well, Again, what was the fear there to not express that? Oh, the fear was, yeah. Um, hmm. It was, again, discrimination. Um, we had just had the Iran uh, um, scandal with Jimmy Carter and the hostages in mm -hmm. Iran. And Death to America was the slogan amongst the Muslims wow, there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and <Contentious> um, <laughs> yeah, as if today isn't contentious right. <laughs> also, but it was, it was contentious then much. too. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, it, just I just did not want to be identified as such. And yes, I heard a lot of anti-Muslim talk in the army, not knowing, you know, what them not knowing my background. Mm -hmm. As far as if there was anyone I could confide in, um, my, my second husband, who I met in the army, mm -hmm. I did confide in him. But much else, I did not tell people my background. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was out of the army hmm. um, that I began to to speak. And even then, it was years later. Right. Looking back, do you believe that reception of different cultures and religions and identities, um, has that improved in the army from what you can see? Well, I've been retired now for 19 years. <laughs> um, hmm. I'm hoping that it have but my not trying not wanting to disclose my religion in the army is actually twofold you know i mentioned the discrimination inside the army i was also afraid and i'm just going back to the last question mm -hmm. i was also afraid if we ever came in conflict with a muslim entity I did not want to be identified if I was ever captured. I did not want to be identified as a Muslim in the U.S. Armed Forces because I didn't want to be made an example of, which surely I believed 
that would have happened. Mm. Um, so it was for my protection and my daughter's protection. Mm. You know? And, and, you know, mm. so your questions asking me whether or not I think things have improved and I'm hoping they have, and I'm thinking that they probably have as far as religions go, because I've seen people op being open Muslims in, in the armed forces. Um, not too many women, but I have seen one or two and I've, I've contacted many people. No one has known of anyone that was that religion that was Middle Eastern and woman and uh, Muslim wow. and an immigrant. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All the check marks. <laughs> yeah. Have things changed in the army as far as sexual harassment? And being a woman, um, I'm not sure because I'm hearing more and more. I mean, they were, they were not good when I was in. The, the code of silence, right? Yes, yes. It's a code of silence. I personally have experienced that on various levels. When I was younger, I experienced it as a subject, <laughs> hmm. um, as a victim. And then when I became a lieutenant colonel and had more power, so to speak, <laughs> I nipped it in the bud when I saw it. And it still, it still happened. And I saw soldiers and officers, the women being the victims and the men covering for each other mm -hmm. uh, and telling us just don't make an issue out of it. We need to be team players. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And you know, things right. like that. Right. You know, speaking about uh, just how culture is changing today, specifically in my generation, uh, women in general have less and less fear to speak up, right? I, I know there was a mm -hmm. time where you felt like you had to be silent or you felt like you couldn't be heard or you wouldn't be heard. Anything that you would say will be denied and, and people would doubt you. Uh, but now is a time where women's voices are, are being heard and, and taken seriously, expanding out to, to all industries, not just talking about army, but any, all of work life. I hope that continues because that's a, a great it, thing. It's a beautiful thing. It is definitely a shift change. Yeah. <laughs> You're really the, a, a groundbreaker, really, <laughs> you know, to get into an area where you look around, you look to your left, you look to the right and, and no one's quite like you. And to still have that determination and that mindset to continue to move up the ranks, that's strong. People who break the glass ceilings is the first of a kind. They take the most arrows. They take the most bullets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what, what gave you that, that strength to pursue something in an area where there was nobody who was like you? Well, I have a lot of faith in God. In Arabic, it's called Allah. Allah. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to uh, educate people indirectly. You know, when they say, oh, the Muslims, they pray to Allah. You know, their God is Allah. I said, well, you know, in Arabic, that means God. God. Because the <laughs> Christian, 
the Christian and the Jewish Arabs say Allah too. And so I try to indirectly educate people. Um, what gave me the motivation is God mm -hmm. and knowing that there's a purpose. There is a purpose. Just this inner knowing that I have to do something to bring myself up because no one else is going to. <laughs> Um, with the help of God. And then, of course, I have a father, had a father, he's rest in peace, um, that encouraged me and always told me to reach my goal. Don't let anything stop you. Don't let anything trip you up. Um, in spite of all that, I still landed in a very abusive marriage and had a husband that abused me uh, physically, emotionally, um, spiritually, although he was Muslim, you can't paint one kind of people with one brushstroke because you have variations in every religion, every race, every nationality, every culture. It, right. it's, you, just, you have right. subcultures in a culture. Right. I was encouraged to marry him because, number one, he was Muslim. Number two, he was from Egypt. But it didn't turn out that way. And in every way, which way he put me down. Hmm. And I was, after my divorce, I was determined that I was going to make something of myself and prove to the world that I'm not going to be thrown away because basically that was his philosophy. I had to be constantly cognizant of the fact that I have to be an example for my daughters. And I wanted my daughters to be independent. Um, individual thinkers, I had to set that example, and that kept me going. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, Mona, your example, not only to your daughters, but to all of us, and not created equal. It's a story of strength, resilience, pain, but ultimately triumph. Absolutely. So I, I thank you for being you and for being that example to the next Mona to, to come along <laughs> and, and break more ground. So I, I appreciate thank you. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> thank you. I also would like to emphasize that my first role model coming to America was President John F. Kennedy. Hmm. He made an impression on me as I was learning English. Perhaps that had something to do with it, but I liked what he was saying in contrast to what I was hearing in school and, uh, you know, from others in the news and stuff. And I truly admired his inauguration speech, vowed to emulate him uh, as I was growing up. Of course, when he was killed, that was devastating too. Years later, and I mentioned this in my book, uh, Along comes President Barack Obama. And I viewed him as I viewed President JFK. For some reason or other, he spoke to my heart. And that came to fruition when I reacted in the Democratic National Convention back in 2016 to a uh, the Gold Star family who had a Muslim son in the army and was killed. And the now president, right? Who was who? <laughs> whatever. Forty-five. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. it was so insulting to that family. It hit me in my gut mm. because that could have been me. Yeah, he was an immigrant. He was a citizen. He was an officer. He was 
a soldier. He was in defense of our country, and he was killed, and he was insulted, and he was Muslim. And so I expressed those concerns to President Obama in a letter, and sent it to him. Just thinking, I hope you get this.、Um, never expecting a answer, and lo and behold, I did receive an answer、mm. on inauguration day. And I expressed that in the end of my book how I received it. That's beautiful. <laughs> it was quite, quite, quite a coincidence. Well, I don't believe in coincidences, but、mm. the way it happened was is quite a story, and it. You'll have to read it in the book. <laughs> Thank you to Lee Researcher Con Branch, Assistant Producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at immnerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.